Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 12, A Simple Plan, where we will be looking at Chapters 20 and 21 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of impulse control, or lack thereof. All right, I'm out of practice, seriously. <sighs> it's been over a month since we've recorded anything. All right, first off, as you all know, I'm going to be explaining what we are going to be doing. Each week we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. I'm just going to go ahead and read the disclaimers because I'm quicker at it. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we are open to that changing if that ever were to happen. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you have read all of the books, or you are one of those weird folk who doesn't mind having a crucial plot with details from the future revealed to you ahead of time like some sort of mad fortune teller, needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. And yes, I did read that, and no, I didn't read that very well. Sorry, guys. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. It's almost like you were in a hurry to get through all that. It's almost like I think some people who are on their 70th episode of listening to us might not want to hear it every single time. But there are also people on their first. Yeah, but why would you start on this episode? Because that's the one that came up in the podcast recommendations. Touche. Anyway, it's time for a 45 second recap. It's my turn this week. Do you have a timer ready? I never have one ready, but actually I do. Cool, because I don't want to eat any cherries. We have some. That's not the point. I don't want to eat them. In fact, actually, I think you bought some cherries that is stuffed into chocolate with some almonds next to it. For you. For us. For you. For us. Insofar as they are for you, yes. For us. In that they are for you, yes. Anyway. <laughs> All right. 45 seconds on the clock. See if you can beat it. Yep. In three, two, one, go. Quoth Will and Sim break into the pony on the premises slim that Ambrose's defenses are phony. Up on the roof, Quoth trips his foe's wards like a foolish goof who fails to gain rewards. After pulling some petty pranks, Quoth falls down to the street. Covered in blood, sweat, and stank, he beats his retreat. The next day at Kilvin's, Quoth receives a rebuke about the sort of Nilwyn work that he's undertook. After collapsing from heat and pain, he finds himself in Mola's care. And though her sympathy waxes and wanes, she protects the secret injuries he bears. 26.30 seconds? Under Took? Yep, I thought it was fun to say it that way. <laughs> You're not wrong, and you win. Told you, those cherries are for you. For us. For you. They're for us the way the raspberries are for us. Um, I will have you know that while we were on vacation, I endured raspberries unprompted sort of. 
that was still something you chose to do. Right, because it was a warm day and the only popsicles available had raspberry in them. You could have said, no, I shall not be having popsicles. I mean, I made faces the whole time. Naturally. Any hoozles. The fickle wind. Yep, we chose as our lens here impulse control or lack thereof because as much as Kvothe is executing a relatively complex plan, it's all in the service of just his petty impulse. Yeah, so for all of you who don't know, Kvothe fancies himself a master thief and Coat, Kvothe, whatever from the future or our framing device, is disabusing us of that quite handily in this retelling. He likes to think that he's the mastermind, but really he's just the fingers. Okay. And we'll get into why. So we start off with Quoth on the roof of the Golden Pony, which is the super fancy inn where Ambrose stays. The sort of upscale establishment only the wealthiest students could afford. And all I have to say to this is I don't like that Kvothe is so petty about people who can afford something choosing to afford something just because he can't. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because pricing for the Star Wars Hotel, the Disney Orlando Resort area, just came out and made me go... <gasps> yeah, let's be clear here. We will never have enough money to afford that for a vacation. But that doesn't mean that people who can afford that for a vacation shouldn't. And this is probably the lowest they can charge and still actually turn a profit based on the expenditures required to run something like that. Lowest? Probably not. But reasonable? Yeah? Yeah, I mean, I looked at everything that's included in that particular stay, and yeah, you get a lot for your money, all told between park tickets and access to all-inclusive food and basic beverages, plus hotel and everything else, and then all of these fun little experiences all throughout it. Yeah, I can see where the expenditure is coming from. None of that stuff is cheap. None of that stuff comes cheaply because it's skilled work. It's also a lot of infrastructure to build and maintain, and you need to hire professionals who are fully committed to this, and that's how much it costs to have that. The hotel is going to be littered with actors and other people in the entertainment industry and that many people touching and breaking and moving and whatever, all the stuff that's cool in that whole hotel, they're going to wind up breaking a whole bunch of things, especially with kids. I think that charging them enough to repair what they've broken is probably a good idea, but... I mean, I digress. So, Kvothe is just sitting there going, I think also he's responding to the class dynamics at play there, which is to say that even just walking into the public house where anyone ostensibly can come in, because he's dressed rather raggedly and, you know, is probably a little dirtier than the rich folk, he'd probably get looked at askance and he probably also wouldn't be able to afford a glass of water. I'm going to be real here. Every once in a while, we'll walk into a place that sells furniture, like nicer furniture. 
a place that's not quite just Ikea. And I'm like, the people around here don't think I can buy that chair that I want. Because I'm wearing a t-shirt with Steven Universe stuff on it. I want to mess with them now. Instead of the, oh, I guess I shouldn't belong here. So I think in the right mood, Kvothe can also be that I definitely belong here. I don't care that I am under seven layers of grime. Blech. I mean, he's proven that in Turbian, he proved that. But I think that it takes a certain mindset at the time that you're doing it. And I don't think that that is always something that you can access. At least not on a whim and not when you're under stress. It also entails interacting with a class system that is not actually beneficial. So moving on, they have a plan to get Ambrose out of his room. So Will writes a flirtatious letter because they've judged that his handwriting is the most feminine of the three. There's no such thing as feminine handwriting. I'm going to just say that right now because if there was, I should have it apparently, except I'm not. Never mind. Some people should have it, and a lot of them don't. A lot of women do not have such things. I will also note that generally what passes for feminine handwriting in contemporary society is to say legible. Or just neat. And by that definition, mine most certainly is not. You have a lot of things working against you, though. I mean... For one thing, you're left-handed and pens smear. There is that, yes. So moving on, it is interesting to me that there is a paragraph that just starts off with our plan. Because up to this point, it's not clear that he has roped Will and Sim into his plan. Our plan is to lure Ambrose out, hope that he stays away for longer than a half an hour, and then set up this elaborate series of in Quoth's left pocket is a stick and in Quoth's right pocket is a stick, and they're connected to Will, who is to tell him when Ambrose has left, and Sim, who is to warn him when Ambrose comes back. Yeah, it's overly elaborate and perhaps overthought. But does that surprise you? Not really. Uh, <laughs> what's also notable is, of course, Quoth overthinks the wrong things and underthinks the other ones. Yes. There's a lot of, oh my goodness, I hate tile roofs in this section. Naturally, we get the Chekhov's tile roofs where he's like, I had to be careful because otherwise they were prone to cracking and slipping and falling. Right. I wonder what's going to happen. That won't come into play, I bet. Also, I wonder if Pat just has a vendetta against tile roofs. I don't know. Maybe a tile roof killed a dog that he loved at one point. Who knows? That's morbid and awful, and I don't like that I'm going to still include that into the podcast. You had the option to cut it out. I did, but I made the split-second decision before I edit this to let everyone know that that is what came out of your mouth. Anyway... So then, of course, we have Quoth creeping along the rooftop, peering in through the windows through a little mirror. We have him creeping on some people enjoying themselves in a bed. A canopy bed as big as my entire room back at Anchors. The bed was occupied. For a little bit there, I'm like, that's not Ambrose's room. 
wait, what? And then I'm like, oh, this is gratuitous sex scene for absolutely no re Okay, cool. However, it does say, what's more, there seem to be more naked limbs than two people could account for. And I'm like, quoth, there is such a thing as polyamory. There is also such a thing as enjoying yourself with more than one person, even if you do not love them. Also, quoth, quit being a creeper. Also, quoth, stop it with the kink shaming. Let people enjoy themselves. However, he seems to actually want to enjoy himself while they enjoy themselves because he says, Unfortunately, my piece of tin was too small and I couldn't view the whole thing at once. Ew. 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 Young Quoth has a sexual awakening. Ugh. Not really. In this particular case, he's still just dumb as a box of rocks. So anyway. Ugh. We will eventually get to Valorian. The high fantasy penthouse letter. Yeah. Whatever. Let's keep going. So anyway, he manages to creep up to Ambrose's window and kind of jimmies it open. And as soon as he manages to get it open, the window slams shut behind him. Here is where we start to get to quote underthinking certain things. <laughs> so he knows that Ambrose is an arcanist. He may not think much of his skills, but Ambrose does know more than the average bear when it comes to things like sympathy and sigildry. And he also knows enough to pay for it. He also has the money to pay for it. Yeah. So even if he didn't do it himself, he could easily pay someone to do it for him. And knowing what he knows, he would be an absolute moron not to. Right. Huh. He's like 11th in line for the throne. Why in the hell would he not have any security measures? You gotta figure that he's been growing up in an environment that encourages compulsive backstabbing. Where, like, being able to survive to adulthood without being assassinated is something of an achievement. You think he wouldn't pay to have magical defenses? No. But both in his quest to just do the right thing for Denna without even thinking about whether or not Denna actually wants him to do this. And then without even thinking about who his actual target is. Right, or who his accomplices are and what he's asking them to do and what they're capable of doing and how effective their method of warning each other with sympathy and sticks. Which, I mean, yeah, it's clever enough but he also hasn't taken into account the idea that his target probably also has methods of alerting. This isn't just someone off the street who has no knowledge of magic or intrigue or anything like that. This is someone who is used to thinking indirectly and to setting traps and all that fun stuff. This is not just a mere merchant who is being rolled by highwaymen. On top of that, I have a feeling that Ambrose can think three steps ahead, or more, probably. And Kvoth, who just kind of does things without thinking about them, without caring about consequences, or even thinking about anyone else's experience and how that might affect their actions. That Kvoth seriously needs to just stop for a second pull his head out of his hormones, and 
think about things rather than just going on impulse. And of course, while he's there, he can't resist doing little minor acts of sabotage to create little petty indignities. I loosened the seams on his pants. How does that help you? Dude, seriously, you're looking for a tiny ring in this vast apartment and you take the time to weaken his seams on his pants and pull minor pranks, like loosening the handle to the flu. All of that is just time-consuming yet petty. If you're assuming you have a 30-minute window, which is generous, you have to give yourself time to get in, get out, and then you also have to figure out time to do your actual thing that you're trying to do. He doesn't actually focus on achieving his goal. He's wrapped up in these little minor things. Like, these are just petty and dumb. And reckless. It's like someone who's taken the time to break into Fort Knox to put a whoopee cushion under someone's chair. Yeah, it would be like if Ocean's Eleven were orchestrated in order to steal someone's Hot Wheels collection. Yeah, it's that level of petty. Actually, no, it's not that. This is what it is. It's if Ocean's Eleven was organized for the same purpose, they have to steal everything in the casino. But while they were there, they realized they really wanted to steal that Hot Wheels collection at the same time. And so they took time away from their cleverly timed and meticulous plan to stop and search a hotel room for Hot Wheels. Okay, fair enough. It's that level of dumb. And like I say, this is why Quoth is pretty good as the fingers. He's good at the mechanical side of things. The actual act of breaking in and stealthily sneaking along. Yeah, he's okay at that, but he doesn't have the impulse control to mastermind a plan and carry it through. Now, that lack of impulse control helped him a little bit. In getting out because he doesn't stop to think but he kind of does that thing of like oh dude that's so so stupid why would I do that and then he does something equally stupid like he gets wrapped up in the minor Zoggins haversack problem <laughs> <laughs> so this is a historical thing that happened in World War II I believe where some allied soldiers captured a haversack that contained a bunch of messages for the German high command. And they wanted to use that information to help themselves, but they couldn't reveal that they had compromised those messages themselves. And so they had to act as if they didn't know anything that they knew, while at the same time finding ways to benefit from it. And here he's like, well, I can't look like a thief who knows what he's doing with these wars, because if I know, look like I know what I'm doing, he'll know that it was probably me. He's way in over his head, and so he just spins in this loop of, well, I know that he knows that I know that he knows that I know that he knows, to the point where he's forgotten what he actually needs to do. Which is just get the ever-loving crap out. Right. Haversack something something? What was it? Meinertzagen's Haversack. You can find an example of Meinertzagen's haversack in use in the book Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson, which is all about people who broke the Enigma Code trying to figure out how to make it look like they didn't actually break the Enigma Code. I do want to point out 
that this is a reference from Silicon Valley. Yes. And it might not be real. It's famously mentioned in Silicon Valley, but it is a real thing. It's a reference to the haversack ruse employed by British Colonel Richard... Minard Sagan. Minard Sagan. During World War One, essentially after two failed plans to take Gaza from Turkey, the British needed to try a new strategy. As the story goes, a colonel named Minard Sagan tricked some Turkish soldiers into thinking he'd dropped some secret battle plans during a horseback chase. In reality, the documents in the bag were fake. The Turks planned their attack according to the fake plans, and the Brits finally succeeded in taking Gaza. But yeah, I want to just say, like, I'm reading through this article very hastily. Are you certain that that is something that literally actually happened? Yes. Okay. It is a historical thing. I'll go along with you because you do have a history minor. Anyway. So, yeah, he gets wrapped up in this game of double bluffs. While at the same time, he's getting alerts that, oh, yeah, Ambrose is here. Ambrose came back. Ambrose is not a dummy. So Kvothe hurriedly jams the lock to the outside of the room in an effort to buy himself some time. At this point, subterfuge is gone. Obviously, someone's in the room. And it's dawning on him just how deep in the woods he really is. Just how in over his head he is. To make a long story short, Kvothe scrambles out of the room through the window, which smashes back on him and breaks. He's scrambling along Chekhov's tile roof and he falls down on his hands and knees and is then rained down upon by sharp as knives tile from the roof that he's broken. None of this was necessary. None of this is subtle. And none of this accomplished his goal. Right. What the heck, both? Yeah, they didn't do some basic reconnaissance. Like, if you look at a successful heist, there is extensive casing of the joint to figure out what are the defenses like? What's the layout of the room? Where is the thing I'm actually looking for? What does it look like? How can I steal it quickly? I mean, he knows what it looks like. He's been staring at Denna and Denna's stuff for, like, ever true but he doesn't know where it is he doesn't know what it's stored in he doesn't know what sort of defenses he's going to have to contend with he doesn't have all of these things and we know meta knowledge because we know further along in the book that what he's actually looking for is a piece of paper right he didn't do that basic work i do like that it does state i landed face down like a cat he goes on to say, but unfortunately, cats all have legs that are the same length, whereas my arms and legs are different. So it hurt a lot more. <laughs> right. I landed on my knees. So I don't know if you remember, but back when I was taking classes at DigiPen, there was a day that I fell up the stairs and just smacked my knees into a stair. And I had bruises the size of apples, which is the description of what both goes through on my knees for like weeks after that point. And I already have a knee injury that has made going up and down stairs kind of painful for the last 
10 plus years. That didn't help. No. I feel for Quoth here. Like, he's got bruises in places he didn't even know he could get bruises. So he regroups with Will and Sim back at his room. Well, okay. So actually, to be more accurate, he goes back to his room without telling Will and Sim that he went back to his room, leaving them to kind of have to guess. We can also make the surmisal that they'd planned that that's where they would regroup. I mean, probably. That would be a logical rendezvous place. It would be. But remember, we're talking about Kvothe, and Kvothe cares about Kvothe and not necessarily about everyone else. So they meet back up at his room, and at that point, they start taking an inventory of his injuries. This is where Kvothe discovers that cut on his elbow from the window. I then tugged at my shirt and noticed that it was stuck to the back of my arm. And I do actually have a story about clothing being stuck to a skin wound. When I got my tattoo, my first one, it's on my back. And I have absolutely no way of reaching it by myself. And at that point, I had a roommate, but there was no way I was asking him to put ointment and stuff all over me. Whatever. I had put, like, the goopy stuff that you should put on your tattoo to help with healing. And then I went to bed not knowing exactly how to deal with that. So I put a t-shirt on that I didn't care that much about. But at the same time, I'm like... It's clean, it's not going to get a whole bunch of stuff in this, but, um, um. And then I woke up and, predictably, t-shirt stuck to new tattoo. Ew. Yeah, and you've gone through a different tattoo process with me before, where I was very careful not to get things stuck to it. But I had to go and shower with my t-shirt on to be able to take it off. Oof. And when it's blood and not just goop, it's even grosser. I felt for Kvothe when he feels this, and of course this is also some foreshadowing. We have heard stories before about what happens when a sympathist gets a hold of your blood, and hey, guess what? A sympathist has a hold of his blood. And the one that he really, 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 really doesn't want to have access to his blood. That being said, we also know that said blood is given to an even better sympathist that Ambrose will then pay to uh, make Foth's life not so fun. Dun, dun, dun. We did say spoilers. Anyway. Meanwhile, because Will is, of course, squeamish around blood, Foth asks him to do the honors of stitching him up. And... Yeah, I feel for both Will and Sim here. Neither of them signed up for this, but they do their best. I find it interesting that after Quoth is just casually like, hey, will you stitch me up? He's like, it's easy. I'll talk you through it. And I'm like, ah. No, it's not easy. <laughs> I mean, there's a mental block about putting a needle through someone's skin. That's all I gotta say. I don't want to go into that that much further. And then they have to work to come up with what's their cover story for all of this. And Quoth is like, we're just going to tell the truth. We're just going to keep it simple. Which, on its face, in the lost art of keeping a secret, is probably the way to go. Something that's close enough to the truth that you can say it convincingly. Yeah, okay. But none of them are really that good at it. 
Yeah, well, there's also the philosophy, and I think that Sim kind of takes this as don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And Kvothe is like, no, 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 no stories, no stories. Stories can get screwed up real quick. No stories. Stories are memorable. We'd rather have something boring and bland so that people will just forget about it. Anyway, on to chapter 21. Before that, though, Will has a crucial bit here. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He points out that Kvothe had said, no, I'm not going to screw with Ambrose anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm totally done with it. But as soon as a certain lady got involved, he makes dumb decisions when Denna's involved, in other words. So, the next day, we start piecework. Kvothe goes through a long and drawn-out explanation of how he has to fake not looking like he's completely decrepit. At which point he said, it would be too easy for everyone to jump to the right conclusions. And this is part of why I absolutely love Patrick Rothfuss's writing. Having been in excruciating pain, especially if you're not used to it, like if you don't deal with chronic pain, looking like you're not in pain is very hard to do. Moving like you're not in pain, very difficult. So... He goes to the fishery, which is sort of his normal start, because he knows he's got a loan that he needs to repay. He's looking for ways to make some money. So he goes to stocks to see what he can make. And there's his old pal Basil, who is one of the people he bunked with near Muse. Basil's in trouble with Kilvin, and so that's why he's stuck running the stocks instead of making his own stuff. There's this nice little bit of Kvoth affecting Kilvin's accent after having found out exactly what basil is in the stocks for and he goes this is contrary to proper procedure Ilir basil an artificer must move with perfect care in all things and i'm just like aww kevin's door is open i will also say that being able to lovingly mimic your superiors is kind of a thing well yeah that's true you do this every once in a while yeah i do it's also here that we learn that Kilvin has frozen Quoth's access to materials and stocks. There is a note next to your name. Please go see Kilvin. Uh... Uh-oh. What's he done this time? Yeah, this time. What did he get caught doing this time? Meanwhile, Basil also informs Quoth that he has seen the girl that has been asking for him who's claiming that Quoth gave her a charm of some sort. Yeah, that's not going to come around to bite him in the butt. Actually, that's kind of important stuff. It's not really something that is going to cause strife that is not furthering the plot related. I'm just saying, this will be important later. Right, but we are kind of getting into this, the problem of Maureen and Danny in A Song of Ice and Fire we're 200 pages into The Wise Man's Fear, and we're kind of running into that sluggish, how-do-we-get-out thing. And so it would be nice to have something that just, and then, plot. So I'm not upset with that, and I don't think that it's really going to bite both. Not really. But it is going to complicate his life. That's true. Anyway, back to present page. So Kvothe makes that long, nervous walk to Kilvin's office. It's kind of like that 
when you're done with that, will you come talk to me thing that makes me about to shit my pants when a superior asks something like that. Anxiety disorder does not play well with that and just chews on it going, what did I do? What did I do? What do you need? What do I do? What's going to happen? What catastrophizing thing am I going to walk myself into? It's usually fine. Yeah. And in this case, it's actually important and fine and something that's like, hey, Kvothe, stop being just piecework. This is really where Kilvin demonstrates more of why he is one of my favorite characters. He brings Kvothe in and is easily able to recite every project that Kvothe has done over the past term. When you hear it this way, it just sounds like a laundry list. He's made things that are useful, but they're not really things that are challenging or important. And, you know, he flat out asks Kvothe, are you happy doing this? So I'm going to rewind a little bit because there is something that is funny and it also ties into the overarching framing device a little bit. So Kvothe does go back to see Kilvin and Kilvin is busy trying to blow bubbles with glass. <laughs> Let's just say that. I know it's way more complicated than that, but he's trying to make a gigantic like fishbowl and he ultimately fails at his goal and he yells out, kissed Krail in coat. And then he says, Kramit Breviten Aaron. And Kvothe translates one of those two things as shirt in God's beard. But the other one, kissed Krail in coat. We know that coat is disaster. Yep. And it's also good to see that, yep, Kilvin sometimes messes up. And yep, he gets mad at himself when he does it. And then he's able to reset. By kind of trying to beat a little bit of sense into Kvoth and encourage him at the same time to not just sit and rest on his laurels. It is no secret that Kvoth is doing all this piecework in order to make a reliable income, in order to continue on his kind of drudgery set pace of I want to keep going to school but I don't have a goal in mind I want to learn all the things but I don't have a thing to apply it to and Kilvin is sitting there going with a little bit of risk you could have a greater reward dude not only that this is a teaching facility the fishery is not first and foremost a profit center it exists so that students at the university can learn the art of artificing. And they can't do that if they don't move beyond those little basic things. And it's very easy for Kvothe, I think, to get caught in this loop of, I need to do things that give me enough money to keep going to school, to the point where he forgets the whole purpose of going to school, which is for him to grow his skills. So Kilvin is giving him a little bit of tough love here, and I think necessary tough love. He's saying, I have this really gifted student who is wasting their time on things that basic students could do. There is Nothing that Kvothe is getting out of this beyond just the money to keep his head above water. And he's not getting 
anything that's enough to put him ahead financially. And more importantly, he's not doing anything that is justifying the risk that Kilvin has taken in standing up for Kvothe. He's not living up to that promise that Kvothe made on his first day at the university during admissions when he said, if you sponsor me, I will be the best damn student you've ever seen. He's not living up to that promise when he's just doing the bare minimum, that sort of first order optimized thing that gets enough, but doesn't actually push him forward, that doesn't test his skills, that doesn't make him great, that doesn't let him learn or grow. To keep on keeping on is not the purpose that Kilvin sees for him. And he's at the point in his academic career where he really should be doing more than just basic deck lanterns and emitters and piecemeal stuff that ends up getting sold back to stocks to be used in other projects. He should be doing something that garners attention, that furthers his skill and challenges him. I mean, that's the purpose of school. You go to challenge yourself. And I really applaud Kilvin for being able to have that kind of frank talk and being able to say, I can see that you're wasting your time. I want to know, do you recognize that you're wasting your time? And Quoth even says, ah, the truth is I've made eight deck lamps in the last year, Master Kilvin. If I have to make another, I expect I might shirt myself from pure boredom. And he's like, thank you. Good. That is how a Rolar should feel. Good. You should recognize that you need to do better stuff. You should be in a position to challenge yourself. Then, of course, Quoth passes out from heat exhaustion, blood loss, trauma, whatever he's chewing on to make himself not feel pain. And he wakes up in the Medica. With Mola. I love her diagnosis, which is an acute case of jumping out of a window last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy Mola as just this frank, no-nonsense, non-stereotypical female character in a book like this. She's very matter-of-fact. She has no use for any of the games that Kvothe plays. In fact, actually, she seems to be intrigued by this little upstart without wanting to put up with any of his BS. I think she sees him as someone who's intelligent and talented, but she's not here to play. Like he's a little brother. He's well-meaning, but really stupid. Case in point, as soon as he learns that Ambrose has accused the thief of taking a bunch of stuff, he's I didn't take anything! It's like, really? No denial? No anything? And of course, Will and Sim quickly arrive at Quoth's bedside to check on him, because they do care about him for some reason. They continue to care about him for some reason. And this is again where I will say that they are better friends to Quoth than he is to them. And this is my point from earlier where Quoth just wanders back to his home and expects that his friends will just come and find him. You know what it is? Quoth is their cat. <laughs> Quoth is Sokka. Yeah. Will and Sim have taken it upon themselves to experience the joys of cat ownership. And they'll go along with all sorts of weird mischief and games and everything, but at the end of the day, they know that they're going to be there and make sure that their good boy gets tucked in and that he's all right. <laughs> you know, and they'll play with him and they'll 
They'll do everything, but at the end of the day, he's their cat. <laughs> and of course, Sim immediately spills the beans about what happened there. Mola is not terribly impressed by any of this. Right, but at the same time, she's like, why? Why won't you just talk to me? Why won't you just tell me that Ambrose stole your girlfriend's ring and you wanted to get it back? Yeah, she's like, don't you think I would be on board with that? I mean, no one likes Ambrose. None of the 10% of the student body that happens to be women would ever be on your side for wanting to antagonize that creeper. And this is making Quoth rather snippy. And it's Will who notes that Quoth's eyes have gone dark green at this point. Don't argue with him when his eyes go dark like that. No good comes of it. Again, Will knows his cat. <laughs> Gotta give him some time. Gotta give him some gentle loves. Let him work it out. <sighs> and even says, he's not upset because you didn't trust him or that you tricked Sim. He's upset because you found out what asinine lengths he is willing to go to in order to impress a woman. And then he looks over at Quoth and goes, is asinine the right word? <laughs> yeah, I picked it because it had ash in it. And then Mola starts looking at the job that Sim did to stitch Quoth up and is immediately critical. I noticed also Will steps in here to make peace, which I really appreciated. He says, hey, lay off. It was a really stressful situation. He'd never done this before, and he was really worried for his friend. So, did he do a bad job? By your standards, yeah. You've done it a whole bunch. <laughs> and then Sim just turns it into an opportunity to ask Mola out. And Mola says yes! As far as unwanted advances go, it's pretty tame. I don't know that it was unwanted. That's true. I think part of it is that Sim is generally an agreeable sort. Of the three of them, the cute little one that is kind of awkward and shy is the one that I would go for. It's true. And again, she figures, you know, worst cases, we have a fine dinner. If nothing happens, we had a good time together. And Mola agrees to leave the details of the injuries off the report. In closing... She advised Quoth to drink more water, get some sleep, and suggested that in the future, he refrain from strenuous physical activity in a hot room the day after falling off of a roof. Smart diagnosis. Almost enough for me to make her my phronemos. Almost. So who'd you pick instead? Kilvin. And that's because he won't just let Quoth get away with BS. He doesn't encourage Quoth to just sit and rest on his laurels or to just sit and do drudgery work in order to continue to sit and do drudgery work. Kilvin understands his purpose as a teacher, as a mentor, as part of the university's system. He understands the purpose of his classes and his art. He is a great artificer, and he wants to teach other people to also do that. And it would be his absolute pleasure if his students surpassed him. 
and Quoth sitting there making things that can be used in other projects is not furthering this at all. Quoth churning doesn't do anything for Quoth and it doesn't help Kilvin get his ever-burning lamp. It's sort of like when you're playing an MMO and for the sake of XP, you just start grinding in a given zone and then you level out of that, but you just keep killing the same enemies over and over again. Like pigs. Long after they've stopped giving XP to you. That's where he's at. It's South Park. Yeah. And even within the crafting system in an MMO, you have a phase where you're just starting out a craft and all you're making are these component parts that are used in larger projects. And after a certain point, they don't yield any new growth in either your crafting skill or just general XP, and they're really just resource sucks. You may be able to sell them on an auction house or something, but they don't yield that much. And in fact, you're probably barely breaking even after cost of materials and effort goes into things. That's where Quoth is at this point. He's hit that plateau. He needs to start moving to the next level. He needs to look for the things that are going to challenge him, that are going to actually force him to think creatively, to do something complex. This is what's going to force Quoth to find something that speaks to something he cares about, that expresses something that is one of his values, and not just, this is a thing that people can use. This is a thing that will get me a small amount of money. It's working yourself to exhaustion to make ends meet rather than taking the risk to stop doing the reliable income earning thing and leap to something that could potentially bring in more. And it's not even necessarily about income in every instance of what I mean. For Quoth right now, that is his primary motivator and expenditure. It's also the difference between doing something creative that is an expression of you. Like when you look at the major innovations that happen, they don't happen because someone just said, I bet I could make a lot of money doing something that everyone else is doing. It comes when people are thinking, what is a problem that needs to be solved? What is something that no one else has figured out how to do yet? What is something that I could figure out how to change? instead of just the simple stasis work. Learning and growing, challenging oneself, these are all things that Kilvin really embodies. Like, that's his character. That's, that's what we get from any description and any interaction with Kilvin. So one thing I also like is that Kilvin says, I value truth in all things, Raylar Quoth. He doesn't like it, the turn of phrase that says, if I'm going to be honest with you, Kilvin, or do you mind if I tell you truthfully, or any of those things that are almost fillers, like just saying honestly. It's passed off a little bit as it being culturally dissonant and or a problem with understanding the language or the fillers or the kind of tick words that we all use. But I don't think that's it. I think that he 
specifically points out, I would rather you be honest and forthright with me every time someone says, can I be honest with you? Because he would like you to just be honest with him. Don't obfuscate, don't hide things to protect him. He doesn't want that. As far as Kilvin is concerned, honesty and forthrightness ought to be the default mode of communication. And when you look at public speaking, people saying things like honestly or frankly, anything like that is, why would you bother saying it if you didn't mean it? If you aren't talking to me frankly and honestly, that means you don't see me as an equal. Or you're hiding something, or you've been told to hide something, or you're waiting to drop some piece of news and you can't really talk to me about it. So why are you talking to me about it? Right. So, moving on, let's talk about interesting facts. We shall. So, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of the Olympics, which has prompted some interesting conversations between the two of us, namely about why we refer to different countries by names that they don't refer to themselves as. So I did some digging on that, because that really fascinates me. I like language, and I like the way our terms grow. So I'm thinking specifically of the fact that Japan is not Japan in Japan. Right. They refer to themselves as Nippon. Or why Germany is Germany in English, but not in German. Right. So, I found that out. So, there are two different types of country names. There are endonyms, which is the name for a country that is used within its own borders. And then there are exonyms, which are the names for a country used outside of its borders. To use, for example, Germany, that's the English exonym. The French exonym for it is Almania. In Spain, it's Alemania. And their endonym is Deutschland, which translates literally to the land of our people, which really wouldn't make sense for me to call it that, because as much as I love the country of Germany, it is not my people that live there. So in Spanish, the United States is Estados Unidos? Yeah. But it is literally the United States. Like, those are the same thing. They mean the same thing. And meanwhile, in the case of Germany, the English word takes it from the Germanic tribes that the English people first encountered that lived there. Whereas Alemania or Alemania, as the French or the Spanish would call it, refers to another tribe of people that lives in what we call now Germany. The thing to remember is the state that we call Germany is actually comprised of hundreds of different little identities that have only really been united within the past 100, 150 years. So the thing to understand about all of this is that despite the fact that we give place names special treatment in English and capitalize them, which not all languages do, place names aren't really all that special. Without one global language, speakers of a given language are going to have their own words for a certain part of the world. And these names are just words, and like any other words, they've got histories and baggage and are subject to the vagaries of linguistic evolution, and even sometimes the mean-spiritedness of the people who use them. So some place names simply come from the people who inhabit the land. Germany was Germany to some folks long before the country united and called itself Deutschland. Their central position in Western Europe means that it has historically shared borders with many different groups, and many languages use the names of the first Germanic tribe its speakers came in contact with as the name for the whole region. The Romans named a chunk of the land 
east of the Rhine River and north of the Danube River, Germania, after the first Germanic tribes they heard about from the nearby Gauls. The root of the name is from the Gauls, who called the tribe across the river the Germany, which might have meant neighbor or might have meant men of the forest. Then the English borrowed the name and in turn anglicized the ending to get Germany. Meanwhile, the Alemanni, which are a southern Germanic tribe that lived around modern-day Switzerland and Alsace, prompted the French and Spanish to name the land Almania and Alemania, respectively. Similarly, the Turkish name for Greece, which is Yunanistan, derives from the Ionians, which is the Greek tribe that established settlements in Asia Minor and had early contact with the Turks. And then sometimes it's a matter of cultural telephone. So like when Marco Polo was in China, he learned about an island that was called Chipangu in one of the Chinese dialects. He took the name home to Italy, where it got corrupted to Giappone, which is G-I-A-P-P-O-N-E. Meanwhile, Portuguese traders in Asia learned of the same island from the Malay, who called it Japang or Jipang, and they brought the word back to Europe and turned it into Japao. Eventually, one or both of those made their way into English as Japan. So as you can see, all of this is just the way that we refer to things. These are all exonyms that we use when we talk about other countries, and they're not always going to match their endonyms. And that's just to be expected. I do know also that there are some places that have been trying desperately to correct the rest of the world. Myanmar does not want to be Burma. That is not their name. That was a name foisted on them. I was going to say given to them, but that's incorrect. Foisted on them. And they would prefer to be called Myanmar. Burma was the name of the colonial state that lived in that region until it was overthrown, and now it is Myanmar. Same thing with Turkey. The Ottoman Empire doesn't exist anymore. It's Turkey, because the Ottoman Empire no longer exists. Right, but I believe that Myanmar has considered itself that throughout being called Burma. There's some of that. It's also tied into the colonial powers. The governmental shift between when it was officially known as Burma versus now explains part of that. But yeah, so there's your answer. Yay. Thank you. So I believe it's your turn to give us a thing of the week. What's your recommendation? Oh, you know what my recommendation is. It's the book series that I haven't been able to pull my nose out of for the last couple of weeks. For the benefit of our listeners, which book series would that be? The Broken Earth series by N.K. Jemison. So after having read The City We Became... I just kind of decided that I needed to read everything by N.K. Jemison, And I started off with the fifth season because we have owned it since forever. And you'd been reading it. And for all of you listeners out there, I read at a third grade level of reading speed. I am not a fast reader. I have dyslexia. I'm easily distracted takes me a little bit of time to get into reading something. And sometimes I can do that thing where you move your eyes over the words and absorb none of it, which has bitten me in the butt for reading assignments in school. Joy, Heart of Darkness, the entire book, which is only like 60 pages, but I digress. I'm going to say this, the fifth season takes a little bit to break through the crust of. 
it is not immediately like hook you, grab you, make you go. Yeah, there is definitely a phase where you're having to learn the language of the world. But not in that way that is like, here's this glossary of terms that you need to know right now, which is something that I ran into with a different one of the books that's in the house that I wanted to read that's the Goblin Emperor. I'm sure it's fine, and I'm sure that I will like it if I break through that particular crust. It's like the creme brulee. It's like, just break through it and get to the gooey center. But with Broken Earth, it took maybe 100 pages or so before I really got going with it. But once I got going with it, whoa. Gonna put this out there. The world is pretty bleak. I don't mind this. I don't know what psychologically the reason behind this, but I actually enjoy some of these things that have a darker worldview without necessarily personally viewing them as a darker worldview. Same thing with horror books. I don't usually get scared by them, but I like the more pitch black, bleak stuff. Even if there doesn't really seem to be a ray of hope anywhere to be found. But all that being said, in this case, I just think that the books are so very, very well written. The characters are compelling. And I find the humor, which for some people, they can't really see humor in it. But I find it's gallows humor. It's very dark and has this menacing, overarching, everything is forked air to it. Yeah, sometimes it can be a little dry. And acerbic. And at the same time, it's a world where sometimes people do stupid things. And the main character does stupid things and suffers for it. The main character is flawed, not always likable, and has all sorts of, I guess, gaps that she's unaware of in her understanding, in her knowledge, and just in her interpersonal style. And she's able to be surprised. She's able to grow. She's in positions where she makes decisions that hurt the people around her, and she gets called for that. I love the fact that she doesn't get let off the hook for being impulsive or mean or misguided. Yeah, I mean, when I say that she makes decisions that hurt the people around her, sometimes these are intensely destructive decisions that end entire communities around her. We're trying to be vague, I think, so that you don't have spoilers. It's about a five-year-old book. The conceit of the first book is something that I do not want to ruin. But as the story progresses, you follow the main character of Essen through a lot of revelations about these mysteries that are surrounding the world of the broken earth. These events that have happened that have led up to her and people like her being ostracized. And there's a lot of things that are under the surface. So much subtext, if you know where to look for it. It is refreshing to have a fantasy sci-fi novel that is written by a Black author that is about a Black woman as your protagonist. Now, along with one of my other favorite books, Parable of the Sower, 
it kind of feels the same level of striving for something better while not necessarily knowing how to get something better. It's really hard to talk about the great parts of this book without bringing up the plot, but to bring up the plot would be to ruin a lot of things about it. I've read the first two and halfway through the third book in a little over six weeks. The second book I just flew through to the point where I caught up with you, which is never a thing that happens. I always give you book series before I get to read them that we're going to both read because you always get through them faster than me. And while you are a hundred pages ahead, we are sharing the last book. Yeah, I mean, part of it is because you haven't had podcast stuff to edit. You've just been able to spend your days reading, so. Right, but even in previous times when I've had time to just sit and read, I haven't necessarily taken the time to sit and read. This one has grabbed me and said, no, you will read. You will not watch YouTube. You will read. I mean, there's a bit of post-apocalyptic theming. There's a bit of, like, I, I think what's really gotten me the most is just the banter between the main character and, oh man, that, no, no, I can't even do that. I can't do that because this would be a spoiler and I cannot do that. I'm so sorry, audience, that I can't really explain to you exactly why I recommend this series, like the exact reason, because I have made it sound like it is a sludging, just the, but it is not. It is very compelling and it is, it is so good. And I would just recommend you break through the first couple hundred pages and then just that. If I had to sum it up, here's the elevator pitch. It is Mad Max meets X-Men meets geophysics and a little bit of the witcher yeah a little bit of that yeah let's go with that yeah honestly i just recommend you guys read it and to that point though we are considering making it a focus of either the main podcast once we're done with the wise man's fear provided that the next book is not out whatever or making it a patreon exclusive kind of series and I'm interested to know if y'all would be interested in that. Now that I have thoroughly confused you all and not really given you a good reason why you should pick up this series other than oh my god I love it, uh, <laughs> I think it's time for me to kind of break away from just read the book dang it to <laughs> picking seven words out of The Wise Man's Fear to highlight. So what'd you pick? There were a couple of them that I found to be funny and some of them that I found to be good choices, but there's definitely one standout. But as for the funny ones, after Will looks at Quoth and goes, is asinine the right word? He goes, I chose it because it sounded like Gash. And then there's also, our little Quoth has a flash pan temper which just goes to illustrate that you are absolutely correct and that Kvothe is Will's cat. Speaking of Kvothe is Will's cat, I instead landed face down like a cat. So what did you pick as your final? I chose, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. 
at least Foth understands Mola a little bit. However, this also bites him in the butt when it turns out that he didn't tell Mola the whole truth. Naturally. So meanwhile, I have seven words from life. I picked this sentence from my aunt Celeste. Hi, Aunt Celeste. She said this in a message to us, I think it was yesterday. You could say it floated my goat. It's just something I can't help but hear in her voice, and it makes me smile when I think of it. She's a delight, and you ought to check out her paintings. She does great work. So, to be a little bit more context, she was talking about how she listened to our mailbag episode from a couple of weeks ago, where she got to listen on the Patreon page because she is an early access subscriber. Yay, you can do that. She got to listen to it a couple of days before it comes out because it doesn't come out for all the rest of you until doing math in my head three, two days after we've recorded this. And I'm just excited right now for all of you to hear what you have heard two weeks ago. Anyway, yeah. she said that she really, really liked it. And she's been complimenting us to like your parents saying that we've gotten better at this whole podcasty thing, which makes me very happy because I know that we were very rough at the beginning. But yeah. Practice. She is someone who says that to get good at something is not enough just to have talent. And you don't even need to have talent. You just need to practice at something. She's someone who has devoted her life to doing creative work. She is a painter, an artist. I strongly recommend you take a look at her work. She likes to do plein air painting. She teaches other students how to paint. And every time you see her talking about her painting process, it's just enlightening. So that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapter 22 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of knowing your limits. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can become an early access subscriber and get it somewhere probably between three days and like maybe even two weeks before we release it to the public because I'm experimenting with the idea of as soon as I finish editing it, providing it to our patrons. Let us know if that would actually be something that you would enjoy. We also have things like art that I get to do. We have one subscriber that gets the art. And so I'm going to be making a new poster for September. And we make podcasts that are exclusive to the Patreon page on things like The Princess and Mr. Wiffle and On a Sunbeam and also just have some silly back and forth game show like podcasts about whether or not a specific theory about the King Killer Chronicle came out of Will's head or off of the internet. There's a bunch of fun stuff there. Some of it's better than others, but we'd love it if more people wanted to go ahead and check it out. Again, patreon.com slash waystonepod. And I am bad at self-promotion. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses.
Ding. Ding. Because you needed to finish this episode. Yes. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 11, A Simple Plan. It's not Episode 11, it's Episode 12. Is it 12? Um, well, I'm treating it as Episode 11 since last one was kind of a weird bonus episode. Yeah, well, I'm not because I'm the one keeping track of everything, so it's Episode 12.